0: Hey guys, this is David Avalon with the Breaking the Guard podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you all to check out DavidMMA.com. That is my new website where I've been posting all of my technique videos, philosophy videos, articles covering all sorts of topics from diet, nutrition, fitness, news, etc. We also have new courses there. Uh, we just finished filming the Head Inside Single Leg series. And we also did some MMA takedowns. And you can check out the site by going to davidmma.com. And you can register for a free account, which gives you access to uh, four courses for free and a bunch of the articles and videos. So go ahead and visit davidmma.com right now and start learning. Hey guys, David Avalon here with another episode of Breaking the Guard. Before we get on to the news, uh, I'll give you some news of my own, which is I'm going to be in Florida, specifically Miami, from February 21st to the 27th. So if you're in town or you're in the South Florida area, you want to train with me, I'll be at my gym at the Freestyle Fighting Academy teaching classes there. So you're, if you want to come in as a guest, even if you're not a student, you're more than welcome to. Uh, you can just check in at the front there or call freestylefightingacademy.com. We have all information there. And then I'm going to be in the Roatan, which is Honduras. So chances are you're probably not there. But I'm there for a week before I get back to Vegas on the 6th. Uh, so that's just some what's going on with me. So again, if you're in South Florida, you want to train with me, Again, I'm going to be there from February 21st to the 27th. All right. Uh, now let's go on to the news. We have... Uh, I actually watched this card. The UFC Fight Night 235. Deletes it versus Amilvoff. Uh Interesting fight card. Again, if you don't want spoilers, tune out now. Otherwise, I'm going to ruin it for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, so of the notable fights that I watched... Uh, that were interesting. One was uh, Diana Belbita and Molly McCann, Meatball Molly, as we all know her. She dropped the weight class, and looked good. Uh, had a pretty solid performance, and uh, you know she was criticized a lot because she had been submitted the past two fights, and notably with an armbar. And she actually won this fight with an armbar, pretty nasty one at that. Um, so kudos to her obviously it looked like it was a good weight change and belbita is not like a slouch either she's a good opponent to to measure yourself against so perhaps that will be a resurgence of her career there then there was charlie radke with uh, gilbert urbina Um uh, radke showed up really well and did a great job of winning that fight now uh, this fight in particular caught my attention, which was uh, Randy Brown and a Muslim Sakhaloff, the uh, Kung Fu King. Uh, Randy Brown's really tall. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, they're fighting at 170, and I think he's like 6'3", or probably more. He, he looked extremely tall, super fast. And he was able to put away Islam in one round, a Muslim, I'm sorry, excuse me, one round with a uh, laser right hand that just goes to them immediately so he's somebody to look out for then there was drew dober and henato carnero and this was a very interesting fight money uh you know (laughs) money henato right moicano as they say uh dober is known for having very heavy power and uh no doubt he brought it but moicano was Doing an exceptional job. This was a really close fight, too. Which again, it looked like Dober kind of blew it. They my memory is failing me a little bit, but I know what kind of won one round, Dober probably won another round. So, like, the third round was like a pivotal round to win for either fighter. And Dober was starting to get the better, particularly the stand up exchanges. Uh, and it was very clear that he needed to stay on his feet. Right, Whenever McConnell took him to the ground, he started to work him a bit. I, I, yeah, I believe McConnell won the first round, and then uh, Dover could have won the second round because he got a good takedown and then was finishing some decent ground and pound from top. But it was clear that the game plan was to stay on your feet. And then he, because he had hit a nice lateral drop at the end of the second round uh, to score top position. So, third round comes in, they get into a clinch early in the round, and then Dober goes for another lateral drop. And unfortunately for him, he ended up bottom. And that pretty much ended the round for him because he was just grounded the rest of the fight, not able to get off his back, and took a big L on that third round, right? And these are one of those things where you have to be careful with the moves that you use, right? Like, a lateral drop to me is. A move that you don't want to use a lot because once you read it it's easier to counter and unfortunately a loud drop is gonna always end up with you on your back if you fail so it's a a high-risk move in my opinion now that's not to say not to use it I've used a loud drop quite a bit through my career it's one of those moves that you have to feel right like you have to have a good amount of pressure moving into you there has to be great setup for it right if that opponent is not initiating. So in the first go around, he timed it perfectly, because the whole time Dover hadn't really gone for a strong take on attempt, Moikano was the one that was pressuring to go to the ground, and he rushed into him and in over under and boom, hit a beautiful lateral drop, like textbook on the second round. The third one was kind of forced, and I felt like, I think, uh, DC also commented this as well. It's like he kind of felt like, oh, you know, he worked once, so it's gonna work twice. And unfortunately, I think, with, especially with a lateral drop, I wouldn't go to that one twice. That, to me, is like a one-off move. Again, I'm not the best throw in the world. I know I have some guys on my team that, uh, one guy in particular, Shah Babonis, has a killer lateral drop, and he's probably a guy who could do it repeatedly, right? Um, but even him i don't recall him using it more than once in a fight and usually that's all he needed right uh, so yeah it's not the type of move that you want to continuously spam right uh, but unfortunately that was a very costly mistake for him because in my opinion that lost in the fight he wasn't able to get off his back at that point and it was just game over right um so that was with Dober fight. So congrats to Marcano, who had an amazing post fight speech. That was one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And he wasn't even joking. That's what made it even better. If you haven't, you should tune into that post fight speech if you want a good laugh. It's pretty good. I won't spoil that for you. Uh, and the, the main event, Roman Dolitsy and Nassaradine Imavov, was another fight that was pretty interesting, which was a it was billed as a grappler versus a striker uh, matchup and imavov again looked the sharper of the two on his feet very fast uh, whereas the leads, it didn't look too comfortable on his feet uh, a lot of overhand rights and in the towards the end of the first round i forget what imavov landed but he had roman on roller skates and got him on the ground and was pounding the hell of him. And I think most, if this wasn't a main event fight, they would have probably called it because it was a savage beating that he took. That he managed to survive. Which, again, super impressive that Roman probably at least a good 20 seconds of a solid ass beating. Right? Like, he really toughed it out. And when the round ended, his face showed it. It was battered. And he was Hobbling to get to the the stool, so for him to endure that beatdown, very impressive. Unfortunately, he went into what I would call like instinct mode, where he became uncoachable, because you can tell uh, his corner, uh, Eric Nicksick, is telling him, "Stop throwing loopy rights, straight right hands. Work for the takedowns. Right, uh, you can you know crush this guy on the ground." And none of that registered. (laughs) Now, on the flip side, Imolov was so tired from that finishing flurry, which I think was much longer than 20 seconds now I think about it. It was a while, maybe even 30 seconds of just nonstop attack. Um, But that takes a lot out of you as a fighter if you empty the tank thinking you were going to get a finish. So now he had four rounds left after essentially emptying his tank. So he was also tired. So uh, this fight became a slop fest, right? Very sloppy, right? Uh, With Roman leading the the fight pretty much because he would just throw a lot of overhand rights, go into a clinch and just hold them against the fence. And Imabab didn't really try to get out of the fence too much. Anytime he would do a fence turn, they would just return to the fence. Like it was not, it looked like he was fine resting too. Right, because in that second round, I would have given it to Roman just from cage control, although he didn't really damage or anything like that. He was the one dictating the fight, and Imab didn't land anything significant in the second, you know. But that first round was definitely a 10-8, you know. So I would say like two to one. They go into the third round, and Imabov's a little more active, but Roman for all the control that he had on defense, and pretty much a lot of times with high double underhooks, and most of the time with a low body lock, sometimes an over-under, didn't really go for any takedown, right? Like, it's like he was thinking about doing a takedown, but never actually tried it. Like, he didn't like do a hip toss, or you know, a trip, or you know, a knee reap, or anything, he was just holding the position. And in my mind, like, well, if you have this dominant position, at least fire knees you know where like if you're you're not able to score a takedown just fire knees to the gut you know or or at least to the legs and the most that he did was a foot stomp which is better than nothing but i mean you know for like all the cage time that he had he really could have done more work and whenever they weren't clinched he was always overhand writing every time and (laughs) that's when i knew like oh man this is a frustrating fight to be a coach because you can't reach your fighter there's no guidance that you can give him that will register, you know? Because once, and I'll talk about this afterwards because this will be my, you know, topic of the day, which is like when you fight out of the instinct, you know? Because whenever a fighter gets pushed to their limit where they're almost knocked out or they're dog tired, they're just completely zonked, right? Like they just, they totally tap the tank. They're going to revert to whatever is the first thing that they learn, whatever's instinctual to them, that comes as you know second nature, so to speak. That's what they're gonna do, and there's not much you're gonna be able to do as the coach to divert them from that, right? And it's understandable, you know. I'm, it's, it sounds like a kind of you know dog in a Roman, but dude, like his toughness is off the charts, right? His durability to survive that f- first you know assault uh, that he had in the end of the round, incredible, and. He fought the whole five rounds, all right, after pretty much having his – he's definitely had a concussion or two, you know, at the very least after that first round. So, like, hats off to him, man. That's hard. But, you know, objectively, you know, if you're watching the round, you're like, man, like, there's so many things that we could have done as far as, you know, takedowns or striking off the cage or, you know, even just instead of looping the right hand, you're just throwing the straight right hand, you know, as the corner was telling him. But easier said than done, right? Your brain's so scrambled. Uh, It's pretty hard to do anything, you know. And I think it was in the fourth round where they actually took a point away from Ivov because he had Roman on a high tripod position, basically front headlock, and Roman had his hand on the mat. So technically, you couldn't strike him in the head, and then he threw a head kick, right? Right. so he, they took a point off from that. So at this point now, his 10-8 round became a 10-9 round, right? So still, I mean, this was going into the fifth round that happened, right? And I, if I remember correctly, I think Roman got a takedown, Whether I, I think it was in the fourth round where he reversed a, a position. Didn't do much with it, but he did get a top position. So, you know, there's an argument could be made. Well, this fight might be determined in the, in the final round. Although I would think Imabov probably still had it. I would have to watch it again. But basically, the fifth round was important to really, you know, go out and get it. But fifth round was more of the same, really. It was the same type of fight. Lots of cage control. Uh, not the greatest looking fight, you know. But again, easier from the spectators uh, standpoint to say, oh, you know, like a Monday Monday morning quarterback the hell out of this thing, right? But from the fighter's perspective, this was a dogfight, right? Uh, and they were just both, ex- they got really worn out in the very first round for good reason. And it just showed for the rest of the fight. Because there's a, I know was one situation that Roman had a decent leg bite. Uh, he could have, Probably got in a good toehold or scrambled to the back, but you can tell the decision making wasn't there anymore. Like the speed was off. Uh, so that goes to Imavov won the, the fight by a decision. So this goes to my point here, which is when you get that tired or that concussed or you're mentally compromised, you have to try to expose yourself to that in training. Now, obviously, I don't want to get a baseball bat and smack my fighter in the head, and then say, "Okay, now fight." All right? That's not going to do you any good. So the only way we can get close to that is by exhaustion, because a lot of people don't realize this. But when you get hit in the head a lot, and you're taking you know damage to your brain, it makes you tired. Right? Uh, if you've never been in a street fight or a fist fight before, or you've never been hit hard in the head repeatedly, it fatigues you because you remember your sensation of energy or vitality is related to the signal of your brain going to your muscles, right? Have you ever been tired enough where you see your hands start to visibly shake, that's a signal issue, right? What happens is normally, like your hand could never stay perfectly still. It could look still, but it's not, right? Because what's always happening, gravity is constantly pulling down on my hand and then my hand has to pull up against it. So normally these little adjustments are somewhat imperceptible if you have a really still hand, right? Because your signal from your brain telling your hand to lift up to maintain its current position is so fast that it's a very subtle uh, vibration. But as you get more tired, that signal starts to get slower. And as that signal gets slower, then the the jitter or the, the vibration starts to become more apparent Okay, so uh, when you feel tired, it's also a signal issue, right? So when you get hit in the head a lot, guess what? The signal processing center is getting all scrambled up. So that's why fighters' legs start becoming like jelly and they start losing coronation, right? It, it's experienced and it feels like fatigue. So uh, you could simulate... Now, it's not exactly the same, right? But you can simulate getting close to being concussed or, be, or having a concussion with extreme fatigue. Again, it's not exactly the same, but it's close, right? Um, and this is where training in those conditions kicks in. Now, this is also an area where you have probably heard me before that we don't want to train toughness every day. And this is definitely toughness training, right? Because when you're that tired, you're much more likely to get hurt so there has to be some caution from the coach's side of managing the expectations of what's going to happen here and uh, making sure that we don't overexpose our fighters to compromising situations but it should be done you know especially if you're a professional competitor you need to be able to push yourself in those deep waters before actually entering them you know so you want to be at least in a simulated kiddie pool you know, where uh, <laughs> uh, a lifeguard could jump in and save you, you know, without getting hurt, versus doing it for the first time out, you know, over the Marianas Trench and wondering if you're gonna drown or not, right? So we sure have some protective mechanisms as a coach, but we do wanna get that heavy fatigue and see how we can, how you're gonna perform, right? One of the best ways of doing this is shark tanks, right? And that's very familiar to most people, right? Where basically a shark tank, one guy stays in, new people come in every round. And for whatever reason, psychologically, this is very difficult. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because the reality is if one guy does a 10 minute round with one guy, it's not really a big deal. But if I switch out 10 guys by putting a new guy every minute, even though these guys might not be on the same level, right? Like they might not be as tough as the first guy. The fact that there's a new person coming in every minute is taxing. And I've seen because we do this in our belt testing the FFA where we're essentially, you know, have new guys coming in every round for MMA sparring. And you will see some of the toughest dudes become (laughs) soft as butter. And it's, it's just bizarre, you know. But it is a real thing. So it is a good way to really fatigue somebody. And I've had this done to myself. And, you know, I'll get caught, you know, late in the rounds where we'll do. I remember one where I was doing Shark Tank with a new guy until I got tapped. Right. And it was like, I think. If I if I finished them, new guy would come in, or it was like every minute. I forgot the frequency, but it was pretty deep in. And one of our better guys eventually caught me. Um, and again, I think he was probably he was a wrestler, a really really good wrestler, Blue Bell. Um, but in a normal matchup, he wouldn't be able to catch me. But under heavy fatigue, yeah, right. Like you can get somebody. So this is a good way of being able to simulate extreme fatigue, again, doing a a shark bait, right? Where one guy stays in and you just keep throwing you guys at a time interval, right? And like I said, depending on your level of condition and your level of skill, you might be able to survive longer, but telling you, around that 10 minute mark, it's, it's gonna start to hurt, right? And obviously the other thing I didn't factor, which is of course, obvious is that these guys coming in are well rested. So they're usually giving you their one minute sprint, whereas you have to kind of pace yourself a little bit if you want to try to survive. right? But sometimes when the guy's sprinting, you have to sprint to survive. So you're getting pushed really deep uh, and it's going to really take a lot of your energy reserves. So that's how you will get the most out of this. If the guys are doing the shark bait rounds or being soft, it's not going to be a big deal right or not as big as a deal psychologically the new guy still kind of shifts you because again it's a whole different strategy and all that but the the pacing is what really makes this work so the instruction should be the guy who's only coming in for a minute should be going berserk in that minute yeah essentially a one minute sprint and you know the later round guys will have obviously the higher advantage of being able to to punish you and you know capitalize on your mistakes but this isn't just to get you tired and say oh you know like well I can get tired and get beat up you want to be able to control your actions as you get more fatigued right in, in this example I was telling you with Roman uh, he had essentially become uncoachable because he was so fatigued that you really couldn't reach him so we would want to try to instill some type of basic game plan for this guy to execute when he's under extreme fatigue right so this would have to be given to him beforehand right in the training session with the understanding look when you get under when everything is going wrong you're you're dead ass tired and you have nothing in you we want this type of game plan right or i want you to do this type of thing here and then we can do those, you know, shark bait rounds and see if we can actually get those to register and so that you execute them, right? Um, so it's not just getting you tired just to get you tired. We're trying to get you tired and then go for a particular game plan. And of course, there's many ways to get someone tired. You don't just have to do shark bait. Shark bait is just an easy one, right? Uh, a lot of times when we were doing our fighter tryouts back in the day, we would just put people through a brutal... A brutal uh, conditioning routine where we can do like a five by five, you know, where we're doing, uh, you know, those giant uh, tractor tire flips, sledgehammers, sprints, you know, uh, hurdle jumps and stuff like that. So after 25 minutes of that, then we bring you in and start sparring. And again, most people are already very fatigued after doing a brutal conditioning workout. And now we put you into sparring with people who are fresh same type of thing you're gonna have a rough time right so we just have to fatigue the fighter or the athlete enough where they start becoming a little mentally compromised right they're just really really tired and once we could put them into that zone where they feel like they're about to go into instinct then we got to make sure we can instill a game plan so that they could still be somewhat coachable right uh like I said, it can be hard. If they are really tuned out, it might be impossible, right? I know some guys that it's just that you can't reach them. Like you could be talking to them. But I don't think they're listening or hearing any words that you're saying. They're just like zoned out. So I'm not sure if this is just on an individual basis, right? Like some people when they under extreme stress, extreme fatigue are just completely uncoachable. Or, you know, it's just a matter of training, right? I feel like I can be reached at the very ends of things, right? Or even when I'm dead, super tired, that I still have an ear uh, and I can still hear advice, right? Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing you have to also have to consider is trust, right? Sometimes you might be hearing advice from your coach, but you don't trust it. And this is also a big problem because you might hear something from your coach and you're like, "Uh, I don't know about that. That doesn't feel like that's going to work right now. Now, the fighter always has the call, right? So he gets to decide whether he listens to the advice or not. However, if you don't trust your coach going into a fight, you're at a huge disadvantage because the coach has the outside view and if he trains with you well, he should know everything about you. So he should almost know you better than you know yourself. So if he's telling you to do something from the outside where he is not compromised, he is not, um, you know, tired or anything like that, so he's clear-headed and seeing from a third-person view what's going on, he should be able to be making better decisions than you are, right? If he isn't capable of doing that, um either a maybe he needs to get some more training or more understanding of his athlete because he should be able to have a good read on you right and and your opponent but the circumstances where you would not listen to your coach's advice particularly when you're in the losing end of a fight should be very rare right and uh, but for example in in this fight with the didn't really listen to anything right where his advice, I think, was spot on. The, the overhand rights were never landing. Um, a straight right probably would have had a much better chance of connecting, especially since he had thrown so many overhand rights. He would have not expected the, the one coming down the pipe. And then the takedowns, of course, everybody could see that that was necessary. And I think only once did Roman drop to the legs, and he, that's when he got the takedown, right? Every other time he stayed on the by lock and never got anywhere. So uh, that's a second factor that we have to consider as well, which is do you trust your coach enough to follow the advice, even when you think that it might not work, right? Or even if you're like, "Ah, that's not something I would want to do right now. But if the coach called for it, it's a good chance that it would work. And ideally, if the coach called for it, you would just follow it unwittingly. Because if you're going to do a move that you think is going to fail, that's already on a bad path, right? But if you have confidence in your, in your game plan and you have faith in your coaches, when they call for you to do something, you do it. And, you, and the, the way it should be interpreted, like, oh, this is what I'm missing. I, I just needed to hear this piece of information from the coach. Boom, go and execute, All right? But if you're second-guessing what your coach is telling you, there's already a problem here, Right? Uh, it's like i said especially if you're losing it's one thing i can understand more if the fight's even or you're winning and the coach is telling you to do something where you think like mm, i don't know man that's risky right i can see that more like okay they're they're you're being you're trying to be conservative what you're doing is working you don't want to change that but when you're losing and things are going bad and you're still not listening to the coach that's a weird call for me that's pretty unacceptable, right? Like obviously something has to change here. If if you're doing the same thing, you're gonna get the same results, right? So uh, that's, that's, I'm just trying to clarify. It's not to say that you can't, you know, ignore coach's advice, but if you're losing and you're doing the same type of stuff, you're kind of crazy for not following the coach's advice, right? Like, I don't know the explanation you have to give me, right? Now sometimes, which does happen, a fighter's injured So you're calling for something and they know they can't do it because they're physically impaired. They won't be able to execute. And for whatever reason, the coach doesn't recognize that you're injured, right? But that wasn't the case here, right? Um, So again, if you're dead ass tired, completely fatigued, mentally compromised, like I was saying, chances are you're going to revert to your fighter instincts, right? And you're just going to do the same stuff over and over again. So ideally, we want to try to engineer that a little bit by simulating high fatigue training right like I said shark bait rounds doing lots of heavy conditioning beforehand get yourself pre-exhausted so the training is really starting once you really want to be done with training right and then working specifics there right where the coach might give you the instruction okay once you start getting really tired we want you to go you know by lock into the cage or we want you to drop to the double or you know whatever the game plan is, so that there is a lot more direction into what happens when things get desperate, right? Versus just getting the guy really tired and just having him do what he's gonna do. I mean, that has a use as well, because then you're gonna learn what his instinct is once he's fatigued, right? And then we can engineer it a little more by doing these types of high fatigue drills. And as an athlete, and as a coach, we have to make sure that the bond of trust is 100%, right, or as close to as we can get. So that whenever the coach gives instruction, the athlete follows, right? And that the athlete not only is following out of like commitment or obligation, but out of faith. Like he has 100% faith that whatever the coach is telling him is is in his best interest, right? So it's not just blind uh, obedience, right? There's confidence, there's faith in the judgment of the coach, right? So, uh, especially if you're a professional athlete or, or a competitor, where you're gonna be putting it on the line and you are gonna be in those positions where you're extremely tired, fatigued, we need to have those things lined up, right? Where we have some uh, con- extreme conditioning. And like I said, this is what I would call toughness training, so this is not something that we do every day or maybe even every week, but it's gonna be in there somewhere, right? Um, your hell week, or whatever it is that it's gonna be your brutal training week, we have to have that mixed in somewhere so that we know okay, this is what to expect when the things get, go south, right? And how we're gonna pull out. So, uh, hopefully, that gives you some insight, at least to my psychology of how to approach these types of things, and you guys got some value out of that. I'll see you all next week. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, Please share, like, comment, all that good stuff, and uh, help us spread the word about breaking the guard. And, of course, visit the website davidmma.com, join. We actually host the podcasts there as well. You might be seeing this on Spotify or some other uh, podcast platform. But we do have the video uh, hosted on davidmma.com, which is free to access. You don't have to enroll. So if you want to get it in video format, you can take a look at davidmma.com. Besides, that's where we have all the techniques, all the courses, all the other stuff that you've come to expect from me. You can get it at DavidMMA.com.